welcome to Moose Cult. My name is Neve McRae and today I talk with Liz Kiley, Senior Lecturer at the School of Applied Social Studies at University College Cork. Liz is the author, along with Katharina Swirak, of a new book called The Criminalisation of Social Policy in Neoliberal Societies that was published by Bristol University Press earlier this year. The criminalisation of social policy refers to the growing intersection between social policy and crime control and more broadly, to the ways in which social policies stigmatise, exclude and penalise social groups deemed to be problematic. In our conversation, we chatted about the relationship between the disciplines of social policy and criminology, the link between the criminalisation of social policy and neoliberalism, the penalisation of lone parents, the rise of the so-called squeezed middle discourse, the significance of interventions to address adverse childhood experiences, the role of the social professions, and finally, the potential for alternative forms of social policy that are grounded in principles of equality and social justice. Okay, hi Liz, and welcome to Moose Cult. Um, thank you so much for joining us to discuss some of the themes from your from your new book, The Criminalization of Social Policy in Neoliberal Societies, uh, which you co-wrote with your UCC colleague, Katharina Swirak, and it was published earlier this year by Bristol University Press. So it's a really fascinating book and it has incredible scope and I'm really looking forward to exploring it with you. Um, I thought maybe, obviously, the best place to start might be to unpack the title itself. Um, so... It addresses the book addresses a remarkably broad range of themes from labor activation policies to migration to homelessness to prisoner re- rehabilitation. But all of these topics are connected in your book by what you call the criminalization of social policy. Um, and you acknowledge that this term can be used in different ways. Maybe could you tell us how you use it? Because I know you use it in quite an expansive way. What, what is the criminalization of social policy and what are its unifying features? Hi, Niamh. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me to discuss the book. Um, It's a great opportunity. So, first of all, I suppose to get to the nub of the issue and the focus of the book, of course, is on the criminalisation of social policy. And we did put a lot of consideration into using that term. We did think about utilising other terms and certainly reviewers of our book proposal at the beginning kind of did raise, um, you know, a discussion with us about using Mm. that term per se. And I suppose we were hugely influenced by um, John Rogers' work um, back in 2008. And it very much, I think, provided the impetus for this book to a large extent as well. And you're right in pointing out that we use it in an expansive way. And I think it could become an issue for some people who believe it should be used in a narrower way, maybe. Um, certainly there are areas that would have come in under the remit of social life that would have been previously regulated maybe by civil law um, and kept within civil society and Mm -hmm. have now been criminalised. And I think that's very much how it's used in the narrower way. So we can think of maybe, you know, new offence categories. We can think of you know, squatting that has become criminalised or, mm-hmm. you know, um, hate crime, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, there are actions that are criminal, but hate crime very much puts the focus, I think, as well on the motivation that um, leads to the criminal activity and also seeks to punish that as well in a more significant way. Mm-hmm. Um And also, of course, we can think of people who are held in prisons because they're not 
um, complying with immigration law. You know, so they're the kind of, I think, the ways we've become familiar with the criminalization of social policy. Clearly, antisocial behavior is another very prime example in that regard. But I suppose, as we pointed out in our introductory chapter, we wished very much, I suppose, to keep um, an eye on those processes of stigmatization, mm. of exclusion, um, the targeting of particular people, how people are maybe excluded from, you know, the protective provisions of the welfare state and all the other kind of punitive mechanisms yeah. that make up part of how we kind of regulate or govern people's behavior. Yeah. So we wanted it to be broader, I think, than how it has been utilized by some. Yeah. And also, I think maybe I'd be thinking about in the, the American context, particularly, I think it has been maybe used in a more expansive way than maybe some other contexts, our own yeah. included. Yeah. No, and you've certainly achieved it. I mean, the connective tissue throughout all the through all the chapters, even though they're very diverse topics, you can see the connective tissue very clearly. So, so maybe we, we can dig a little deeper into some of the examples, maybe as as we go through. Um, maybe just also just to 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 kind of explore your the the disciplinary backgrounds of yourself and and your colleague Katharina. So, it I mean, the book analyzes a vast amount of literature and that cuts across the two disciplines of social policy and criminology. Um, I know criminology is more Katharina's area and you're obviously a scholar of social policy. Um, could you tell us maybe something about how these disciplines intersect uh, or maybe even differ and what the value was in bringing them together to study the changing logics of the welfare state? Yeah, I think criminology is a discipline that's heavily influenced by psychology in particularly, particular, maybe also sociology, but in particular, I think psychology. And very often the focus can be quite narrow on, you know, the criminal mind or yeah. um, ideas about why what causes people to commit offences. Um, you know, why do we have crime in society? Those kinds of issues. I think criminal justice policy is broader than criminal yeah. criminology. And I think as well, there's, um, you know, a, f- a much stronger focus on the different agents of state that make up the criminal justice apparatus and on, you know, kind of the designation and the prevention of crime in criminal justice policy per se. Um I think um, over time in criminology, we've seen a strong focus on the what works agenda, a strong concern with that. And it's driven criminology and criminal justice policy, I think, in a particular direction as well. And I think in a way it has become even more influenced by the discipline of psychology Mm -hmm. in that context as well. Um, you can kind of see that in popular culture almost as well, can't you? You know, even with all the TV programs around, I don't know, CSI and all that kind of thing, you know. Exactly. I think so. And many of our students come to criminology um, with that in mind, that they're right, going yeah, to be focused yeah. on the criminal mind and they're kind yeah. of going to be doing almost a forensic science. Yeah. Um, so, I, and I think, um, you know, it's qu- it's quite different um, in many respects, because I think in you know, in looking at criminal justice policy in particular, that's what brings it closer to the discipline of social policy as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally, when we're studying social policy, we're concerned with the welfare state mm-hmm. and social provisions, social policies, very often what we call the big five and, you know, education, housing, health mm-hmm. and so on. But, you know, um, criminal justice policy has been fairly marginal in the context of social policy. It's not covered very often in some of the key social policy texts. 
-hmm. it's very often um, not included. And I think as well that, you know, while there are new fields in criminal justice policy, you know, we might think of some something like cybercrime or in, you know, environmental crime that has become gained in, in terms of its focus. Social policy has also become more expansive, I think, in terms of what it covers. I think what brings them together and what's the advantage maybe of bringing them into the same focus is that very often, I think, if I think again of our students, they come to social policy maybe thinking that they'll find some of the solutions within social policy, yeah. you know, as to why we have crime. And maybe that's the area that needs to be um, focused on or they need to learn more about. But I think equally um, they need to take into account maybe the punitive dimensions of social policy as well and to reckon with those more and to understand where social policy comes from as well because it does come from an orientation to discipline, to control, to regulate yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and I think, of course, there are many theorists who make a very strong case to bring the two in, in under the same um, kind of microscope scope, if you like. I'd be thinking of people like um, Garland, for example, mm -hmm. you know, who, you know, very much did with his concept of penal welfareism, where he, you know, kind of showed the, the focus uh, of criminal justice policy in times past. Or equally, I'd be thinking of Loic Vacant, mm -hmm. who, you know, equally has made a, a strong case to bring them in um, to the same kind of point of analysis and to look at the two, you know, the idea of prison fare yeah, for yeah. men and work fare for women, for example, in the yeah. context of the United States is yeah. very good instance of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And your book does it really well. Um, and just maybe to focus a little bit on the kind of um, the periodization of the book. So the title of the book is The Criminalization of Social Policy in Neoliberal Societies. And I know that was emphasized a lot in, in your analysis. So maybe just to chat a little bit about that. Um, so you acknowledge, of course, that there's a strong historical precedent for excluding and stigmatizing and punishing certain so-called problematic pro populations. But you note that since the 1980s and 1990s, we've seen the rise of a more disciplinary welfare state and the growing use of social policy as a tool of, of crime prevention. And then again, of course, that was consolidated after the financial crash. crash. Um, so what, in your view, is the link between the criminalization of social policy, as, as you guys define it, and, and neoliberal, specifically neoliberal modes of governing? Yeah, I, I think... Um the two feed each off each other considerably, and I think that's what we've been trying to get at mm -hmm. um, in the book. And yeah, I yeah. think um, that's, for me, that's a significant interconnection, how the two kind of work together in particular kinds of ways. So if maybe we picked a few examples, I think we could show that. Yeah. So I think neoliberal modes of governance, for example, particularly um, puts the focus on, you know, um, interagency partnership working, bringing agencies in civil society and statutory agencies together, for example, in the context of working together to solve problems or to address social issues and to meet the needs of particular groups in society. But of course, in bringing them together, you know, there are certain implications that occur as a mm -hmm. result of that. Mm. So I think a lot of joined up government, a lot of interagency working is about, you know, bringing agencies in together to work in the same kind of way, um, you know, and very much to kind of work from the same, you know, kind of reference point, if you like. Yeah. Um, 
I think another aspect that's hugely important is the shift from welfare to workfare or, mm. you know, passive welfare receipt to activation and the focus in the context of ensuring that people can't, you know, be allowed to passively receive welfare. They have to, you know, their conduct has to be observed and monitored. They have to be shown to be doing, have to be seen to be doing particular kinds of things. And um, they have to be, you know, putting an effort into tr training themselves, into getting the right habits and attitudes and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of punitiveness in that context, in, in the movement away from kind of passive welfare receipt to activation um, in that sense. And I think as well, of course, we know that neoliberal modes of government require people to self-regulate to a large extent. You know, there's a strong focus on regulating our own behaviours or our own conduct mm. um, and not looking to the state to make, you know, social provision, to provide provision for groups of people um, that may need their support. Um, so I think we've increasingly seen over time how services and programmes have taken on that kind of um, punitive hue, if you like, yeah. in terms of how they're, you know, expecting people to fix themselves or to do better. And these are people who are really marginal, really struggling, you know, who are, you know, not who who are really you know not benefiting from our society yeah. you know they're really um you know economically marginal um in that context and yet so much is expected of them and they're you know cast as failing um if they don't live up to what is expected of them so certainly i think just to say a little bit about the periodization um I think at different points or different junctures, we see a ratcheting up or, a, or an intensification of maybe more punitive dimensions. And I think we see that in the 70s. We see it again. There's, you know, the 1990s in particular. But equally, I think we saw it after the, the um, financial crash and the period of austerity. Mm. And, mm. you know, I think there was a strong focus at that point in time ensuring up capitalism ensuring up neoliberalization yeah. as well yeah. and in that context you know rolling out the austerity project and to a large part i think there was an intensification of the punitive throughout that period yeah 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 no that's so interesting and um you touched there like one of the aspects that you touched on was that shift to um you know um welfare conditionality and labor market activation and so forth um and and you have a particular focus on that in one of your chapters you know arguing that um labor market and welfare policies have become mechanisms as you said just said there you know through which the poor are basically disciplined um the hysteria around welfare fraud as well for example um one of the, i was really struck reading your book um one of the, because one of the case studies you include in the so-called is this is the so-called activation of lone parents and it, I thought it was particularly striking, given how we've just emerged from a period of national reckoning about the punitive ways in which we, you know, the punitive treatment meted out to unmarried mothers in Irish history, not not so long ago in terms of mother and baby homes and so forth. Um, so people might be surprised to know, or maybe not surprised to know, that there is still that contemporary uh, punitive um, element going on. Cause, could you tell us a little bit more about how contemporary welfare policy penalises lone parenthood? 
Yes, um, I think certainly you're right in pointing out that we've um, come through this period where I think we've blamed a lot on maybe the church and, you know, the religious Mm. institutions and their treatment and maybe left the state off the hook to a certain extent as well. Um, I think certainly in more recent times, um, while... I, you know, I th- certainly think there's been an improvement in social attitudes. Mm. Um, certainly when we look at welfare and, um, you know, the d- d- degree to which we support lone parent families in Ireland, I suppose there's a lot of issues um, that need attention. I suppose, first of all, you know, we've seen from about 2006 in particular, you know, from that period onwards, there was a strong focus on activating mm. lone parent families. They were specifically targeted more than other groups in the population at that point in time for activation. Um, so certainly it was mooted and it was, you know, in in the beginning at that period of time and it ratcheted up again with legislation in 2012 and in 2015 there were more measures again. And I think throughout this period of time what we're seeing is that lone parent families you know, are expected to become involved in the labour market or to, re, you know, to train themselves. Um, and, you know, certain categories of lone parent families were targeted more than others. For example, yeah. in 2006, when it was first mooted, there was a sense that if um, these were families that were widowed, for example, the same focus wouldn't be put on mm. in terms of activation than if these families were not, um, you know, uh, lone parent families um, due to widowhood. Mm. So we can see their kind of conceptions of deserving and undeserving and that dimension. So certainly as well, during the period of austerity, there were huge cuts that impacted on lone parent families. And at the same time, you know, lone parent families were expected to move from the lone parent family payment onto um, a transition payment and to be activated and to show themselves... um, you know, very much trying to, um, you know, be, to get work and to obtain work and to or to train or to engage in employment um, for the purpose of labour market engagement. Mm. The problem or the issue, particularly in the Irish context, but it's not, you know, it's not only the Irish context where this is evident. Um, but here, I think there hasn't been the same kind of focus on childcare provision. Mm. So we've been very actively pursuing activation, but with without it being, I suppose, what many others would call careful activation. Um, There haven't been the kind of supports that lone parent families would need to ensure that the move towards activation could be positive, if ever it could be positive. But I think, you know, in Ireland, there's plenty of evidence indicating that lone parent families, they want to work, but the conditions have to be right. Mm. And, Mm. you know, it certainly isn't easy for lone parent families um, to work. And I think as well, you know, the labour market has been pretty much inhospitable to lone parents in the context that, you know, there's going to be one parent that has to be responsible, that has to look after the child. They are going to have to ensure that there's excellent childcare, Mm. you know, that, you know, that they can work in a way where they can reconcile and work and family life. And that's Mm particularly difficult for lone parent families, I think, more so than other families where there are two parents. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you hinted there really at that. I mean, there's such a strong class dimension to it in the the kind of deserving and undeserving kind of lone parent. And 
I think that was all. I was also struck how I think it was the same chapter um, where this stigmatization of social welfare has been accompanied by the rise of a discourse around the so-called squeezed middle. Um, and I know you and, and your colleague Rosie Mead have written elsewhere about this also. So I, I'd love to hear more about that. And, and what's the nature of this dors- discourse around the squeezed middle and basically what, you know, what ideological function does it serve? Yeah, I suppose um, Rosie Mead and myself in discussion had recognised this um, during the whole period of austerity in particular, mm. I think. It's not um, new, but during the period of austerity, I think we particularly witnessed it. And um I think um, it is an ill-defined group, the squeeze middle. Mm. We can all be part of the squeeze middle to a certain extent. Well, particularly, I think that group of people that are, um, you know, um, working and, you know, that are kind of, um, I suppose, have a certain kind of lifestyle that goes with their income and and so on. Um, So it's very broad, very ill-defined. But I think um, it was used very much, I think, during austerity in a very populist way where both the media and I would say certain politicians latched mm-hmm. onto it and gave this kind of impression that, you know, those in, this, in, in the middle were those who were hurting the most during the period of austerity, mm-hmm. when in fact mm-hmm. the evidence um, didn't indicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was, um, this served a purpose during austerity, I think, to kind of largely, um, you know, ensure that cuts could be made and that those cuts Mm. were just, if you like. And I think it really kind of allowed um, people in that very kind of wide category, that very expensive grouping, to feel that this was all justified and it was all okay to to make these kind of cuts because really middle class people were suffering the most. Yeah, yeah. So certainly I think it was ideological and I think it was about helping along an agenda of austerity that was particularly harsh on particular um, on, on those who were, you know, the most marginal and the most ex- excluded in society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, I suppose to turn to a different a different theme in your book, um, there's a very there's quite a long chapter on um, which which is called the criminalizing borders, migration and mobility, you know, which, of course, I'm sure could have been a, a book by itself. It, it's it's such a large topic. And it's I mean, it really documents a really astonishing range of ways in which those who migrate are met met with harsh, divisive and often downright deadly forms of immigration control from incarceration to everyday bordering practices in which migrants are monitored as they go about their daily lives. So I know it's difficult to do justice to such a big topic, but could you give us a flavour of these developments and how they fit with the overall theme of your book around the criminalisation of, of social policy? Yeah, I think very often um, the motivation for this chapter was because um, the criminalisation of migration and migrants is very often left on the sidelines maybe of social policy and criminology mm. literature. Sometimes, you know, it is going to be covered in migration studies, but there is a risk that we don't look at it at all in the context of criminology or social policy. And we wanted to ensure that that didn't happen. I think we also felt it very timely at the time because we were conscious of the shoring up of of borders, you know, everywhere, you know, where people from the global south in particular were being, um, you know, left left out where they were, you know, experiencing the worst kind of criminalization where they were arriving at our borders and very often dying. Mm, um, mm. 
there. So we thought it was important, um, I suppose, in that context. We were also conscious of the rise of the populist right in many countries. And as well as that, I think migrants are very often criminalized in the the narrow sense, but also in the very broad sense in terms of, um, you know, there are people now who are, you know, kind of helping migrants at borders and who are also being criminalized. So that's a really worrying development, I think, in recent times, which means that the basic forms of help that migrants would need, they wouldn't get because people would be afraid that or agencies that they would um, be criminalized as well. And I, I suppose we're also um, attuned to, you know, what we often call welfare chauvinism, but the idea that within certain European countries, there has been a shoring up of kind of benefits and protections for people who are considered citizens or, you know, within the borders of those countries. Um, but those kind of benefits and protections, etc., aren't afforded to people who um, are not considered citizens of those countries. So... We were very concerned as well, I suppose, of the kind of, you know, the kind of dividing practices that can occur mm. where migrants are really often othered in societies um, and where, you know, people start developing, you know, very negative attitudes towards people coming in. Um, so I think that is, you know, while the, these ideas have, you know, have been part of the kind of logic of the welfare state in many respects. We're also seeing, I think, a growth in kind of regulatory regulation of the conduct of those who are not seen as belonging to our yeah. welfare states. Yeah. So yeah. I think they were some of the reasons why we felt it was really important to focus particularly on migrants. Yeah. And I think that also showed the way in which just ordinary people are being recruited into the project of the criminalization of migrants and, and of social policy. And I know we'll touch on that later, but you know, the prevent agenda in the UK and, you know, universities and teachers and NGOs and communities, you know, themselves are involved in kind of trying to being sucked into the surveying of, of, of migrants. You know, I think that came out really well. Yeah. And I think it's very much captured by the concept we use that has been developed by others, the securitization of social policy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But how so many agencies can be brought into the agenda that you're referring to there, where, mm-hmm. You know, it's in with the idea of preventing terrorism or preventing crime um, that certain groups need to be surveyed in the population. Mm. Um, and certainly we've seen that in a wide variety of countries as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, just to, again, to switch to a different theme, which I think shows the scope of the book, you have this really fascinating chapter um which speaks to the the shadow side of interventions that claim to measure, diagnose and mitigate adverse childhood experiences, Um, which if if listeners aren't familiar, this is a set of experiences which have become widely known via the acronym ACEs. So they've become widely known in childhood services and so forth. And when I was reading it, I was really struck by a quotation that you include from the website of Young Ballymun, which is an area-based childhood programme in a disadvantaged community in Dublin, and the quotation was taken by Young Ballymun from a, from a book on childhood resilience by a US author called uh, Paul Tuff. Um, and I thought I might just read it out, Liz, if that's OK, in its totality, um, as it's quite arresting for what it says, but also, of course, for what it does not say about childhood difficulties and inequalities. So this is the quote. Um, so it says, um, to begin, the most reliable way to produce an adult who is brave and curious and kind and prudent is to ensure that when he is, he is an infant, his hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis functions well. How do you do that? It is not magic, 
First, as much as possible, you protect him from serious trauma and chronic stress. Then, even more important, you provide him with a secure, nurturing relationship with one parent and ideally two. And that's end quote. So, I mean, on one level, it's saying something quite prosaic. You know, children, sh- we, should, we should help children avoid trauma. We should be, have loving relationships for children. You know, I mean, that's pretty uncontestable. But it's also very significant for what it, I suppose, silences. And I think that's, I suppose, what you're trying to get at in that chapter. Um, so I was wondering, could you maybe elaborate on the growth of this ACE trend and maybe also speak to some of the uses and abuses of academic knowledge in that regard? Yeah, I mean... I think, first of all, just um, to that quote, I think is, I'm glad you read it out because I think it's, um, it really reflects, I suppose, the kind of concerns that we have in the context of ACEs. And, you know, it's not particular to, um, you know, young Ballyboneites. So many, yeah, yeah, yeah. communities and organizations have been influenced really by the ACEs research and by the interventions that have come about as a result of this research. And I suppose, you know, it is American research in that the initial study that was became hugely influential was undertaken in the States and with um, a third level um, population. But it has grown in significance um, to a huge extent, I think, in so many different countries. Almost nothing has been left untouched Mm -hmm. by ACEs. And I suppose, you know, often when you do a book like this, it's not to not recognize its uses or as you point out that we do need to have a focus on adverse childhood experiences Mm. and the kind of damage that those experiences do Um, and you know ACE has has done that it's achieved that maybe where many other um, approaches have not but um, you know and I can see why many professionals and many practitioners find this initiative exciting, you know, because mm-hmm. they're recognizing, oh, well, we now have a tool to measure ACEs or we, you know, can gather, get our ACEs scores and we can devise interventions that need to be um, devised as, you know, to kind of ameliorate the worst effects of these, um, you know, adverse experiences and so on and so forth. But I suppose the problem in many respects is that, you know, poverty and disadvantage and inequality cause an awful lot of childhood childhood adversity but very Mm. often these are left out Mm. they're often given a nod to I would say they're often mentioned oh of course poverty is one of these but because poverty is so big to address very often you know it very much then narrows the focus into what can be addressed to Mm. a more significant extent and starts putting the focus on individual children and on their families and particularly I think on parents Mm -hmm. And I think it loads responsibility onto parents who have very few resources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we go back to your quote, you know, it, it's fine if we have all the resources in the world, you know, we can more easily shower our children with love and attention mm-hmm. and with all that they need in terms of the resources, etc. It's much more difficult if we're, you know completely struggling to try and make ends meet and worrying about making ends meet and, you know, worrying about other kinds of issues or problems that are arising as a result of the situation we find ourselves in. So in that context, my big fear about the dominance of ACEs is that it takes the focus off structural problems and issues in our society. It doesn't put the focus on what governments need to do in terms of ensure good planning, good housing, Um, you know, economic security for families, all of those can militate against adverse childhood experiences. 
Um, but very often, I think they're not the focus of attention because mm. many agencies, organizations, professionals, practitioners feel that they can, you know, do something about the household dysfunction or they can mm. do something mm. about the, you know, the parenting or they can improve that or they can, you know, change the lifestyle or the, you know, the kind of habits or whatever. Mm. And that mm. they're more easily to direct, they're more easy to direct their attention onto mm. than the bigger you know, kind of problems that um, exist in our society. So I think that is really, you know, at the crux of of our concern. And I think a lot of the interventions that are devised are quite surveillant, quite stigmatizing, and very much put the focus on what individuals within families and what families need to do to become more resilient to poverty, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very much tied up with the resilience agenda as well, you know, yeah. Completely. And I think, you know, trauma-informed care is very often, you know, the kind of solution that's Mm. relied on. And, you know, my concern really is that I suppose, you know, a lot of these kinds of interventions take the focus off, you know, wealth redistribution, to put it simply. You know, they don't help us to tackle the wider socioeconomic inequalities that exist in our society. They don't give us the impetus or the will to tackle poverty in a significant way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and it's it's, it's very tricky because there must be a way. And I think sometimes those of us on the left probably shy away a little bit from from naming the kind of trauma that that poverty and inequality causes because it can feed into some of those stigmatizing individualizing kind of discourses do you know what I mean and it I mean it really behoves us to kind of find a way to hold both you know what I mean and to name and one of the to to sort of name one of the reasons why poverty and inequality is such an injustice is because it damages people but to say that is so tricky because it can cede ground I suppose to some of the discourses and some of the kind of agendas that you're critiquing you know it's it's very tricky I think that is true, but I think we always need to keep in mind that the damage is done because of poverty and and inequality. Mm. And I think the risk or the danger that's very often there is that they become divorced from that. It becomes all about the interventions that are directed at improving the family relationships or functioning when really the focus should be more on what we can do socially and politically to improve you know, lives to improve yeah. circumstances. Yeah. And that's really my, you know, concern with the whole kind of move towards ACES yeah. and particularly, I suppose, where we see ACES become hugely dominant yeah. in, you know, yeah. modes of practice, really. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely are. And and I think what you're saying is also brings up a challenge for those of us who are involved um well, I am, and I know you are in the in the education of social professions, whether it's youth workers, social workers, social care workers, early years. Really, no social profession left untouched by this. I think, but I think your book prevents a significant challenge to obviously the social professions, and as I said, those of us who are involved in their education, because it's it. You can see, like the Aces is a good example. Even the migration stuff, the the the, the welfare activation, how we're we're being kind of recruited into the the punitive governance of the poor. Um, and, and I think you touched on this earlier, but I was really struck by a line in one of the chapters on, on family support in which you state that for practitioners, poverty is now perceived as either too big to tra- excuse me, to tackle 
or so familiar that it's invisible, you know. Um, and it, it really highlights both how entrenched inequality is, but also that kind of ideological climate that we kind of work in, that it becomes almost invis- invisible. So what do you think professionals can take from your book? You know, how can how can we challenge or resist some of the, maybe the trends? I know that's a really big question, Liz, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not asking I mean, you to have the whole solutions, know, but how could we it, yeah, you know, challenge it? It is a very big question. And I think as well, maybe some social professionals or practitioners might feel I'm putting too much on them, you know, <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, in my yeah. in what I'm saying today. Or, you know, equally that the book is putting too much on them in many respects. And I think, you know, we do realize or recognize that people are out there, you know, doing their best with limited mm. resources and, you know, in, in difficult situations and maybe don't have time you know, to think, you know, about what they're doing very often as well. So we do recognize that people are are operating in difficult circumstances as well when they're working with people who are poor. But at the same time, we feel that it behoves us, you know, first of all, as educators, because I put, you know, the impetus on us too, yeah, yeah. that we have to be careful. I think that very often education can become a, a thing about, you know, educating the social profession so that they can, you know, um, of uh, you know implement policy or they mm, can become mm. skilled practitioners and you know they can go out and they are work ready or you know that awful <laughs> <Yeah>. term <laughs> whereas I think really you know what we should be doing in our third level you know institutions um, should be about giving people the space really I suppose in mm. an educational environment to think about how we can do things differently what mm. may be wrong or you know problematic with the ways that we we do things the ways we work with people who are poor um you know and also to think about more novel or new ways of working but also to look at what we've lost in the context of ways of working Mm. so you know um you know i suppose part of the concern could be that for example we've very much moved towards kind of risk prevention paradigms, Mm. you know, both Mm. in criminology, I'd say, and social policy in the context of trying to manage risk, control risk, predict risk, all of those kind of different dimensions and respond to it. And I think moving away from that, you know, for the very start would be a help towards, you know, thinking of other ways of working with people that recognize the strengths that they have, working with them more collaboratively, you know, ensuring the dignity of the person as we work with them as much as possible. And I know this sounds very basic and people will say it's very basic, but we do lose sight of those things when we get drawn into modes of governance, Mm. Mm. Um, you know, and we get into ways of working that are far from, you know, respecting people um, or dignifying people as such. So I think in that context, we have to provide that space and hold on to that space for Mm. critique and, you know, it might mean that when individuals go out into the world of work, that they get sucked up into the demands of the job. But at a certain point, one would hope that they will have time to mm. reflect or think about what they're doing yeah. and maybe create collaborative spaces in their work environments to, you know, manage to speak back, if you like, or yeah. to challenge their yeah. ways of working or to think about doing something differently. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of always keep Keep that in mind that there may mm. be opportunity for people to, you know, keep those spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, we very often teach practitioners, as you will know, Neve, to be reflective about what they're doing. Mm. But that reflective has to, reflexivity, I think, has to be informed, I think, as well by, 
you know, a wider kind of um, vision of what we want our society to be and mm. what we're doing and mm. how we can push against things that are not in keeping with, you know, the vision of our organizations or the vision of the kind of practice we want to engage with in with the people we're working with. Yeah, Yeah, because I mean, because it does sometimes take a bit of courage for young students going out if the organization, if these things aren't even named in the discourse of the organization, never mind even implemented, you know, it does take some courage. So to kind of maybe even just put the head above the parapet a bit and you know, I think, and I think that that thing you're saying about the collaborative spaces is really important as well, so that you're not just on your own. Exactly. And I certainly think it's very difficult for people who are just going out, but I think maybe at a certain point in time, pennies drop. That's what I would hope more so. And that, you know, at the very beginning, people are getting used to a new job and they're going to be, you know, getting used to the culture of the organization and they're going to be looking to line managers and whoever else to, you know, kind of um, give them a sense of how the job needs to be done and all of that. But I think, you know, one would hope that, you know, as a result of a third level education and being opened up to ways of thinking differently, that at some point they will be able to, you know, maybe stand aside and look at what am I doing here? What's this Mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. And take the courage, particularly as well as they move up the hierarchy in their organization, you know, that they will have you know, the courage to speak and the confidence um, to speak as well about what they see that may be problematic. And as you point out, it's difficult to do that individually, Mm. but we can use our associations, you know, through unionization, through Mm. informal collaborative spaces to, you know, discuss these issues, to explore them and Mm. think about, you know, how we could do things differently. Mm. And, you know, true CPD or what other modes are open to us to maybe engage in education along the way as well. You know, sometimes I often come across practitioners who say, you know, that something we're talking about in the academy, for example, that that's exactly what I've been encountering all along, but I didn't maybe have the vocabulary. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. But it's not exactly, exactly. The theory isn't something to be afraid of, that it's actually a, win- a framework or a window into the world to help you understand. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's where we can work together as well, collaboratively, yeah. where we yeah. can point out, you know, where the, the issues and the challenges are and maybe look at how things can be done differently and to advocate for things to be done differently. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And then I suppose finally, Liz, um, I mean, that this kind of is a, maybe a continuation of that. Um, each of the chapters in your book provides space for discussing alternatives to social policy that disciplines and penalise and excludes. Um, and the final chapter itself also locates your analysis within a wider emancipatory vision um, and encourages us, despite, you know, all the depressing things we've been talking about, that, you know, that, that to remain hopeful. So I was wondering maybe if we perhaps just even taking a few themes as a focus, could you, could you give us a flavour of how social policy has been done differently or even or how it could be done differently in a way that might be more aligned with values of equality and social justice? Yes, I think just to to go back a little bit there to what you were saying, I think one of our concerns was that this book could become, you know, a book that would make people very despairing in many yeah, respects. Yeah. You know, criminalisation of social policy, It's a term that I think is quite loaded and people could feel, you know, we're going in a direction that is so negative and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, you know, that I was concerned about that. And I think equally Katharina was. And we saw we kind of really had a strong focus on every chapter trying to look at, you know, what we thought looked like, 
you know, positive examples of social policy or, mm. you know, things done differently, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And each chapter has a focus on that in as much as we could do that. And it's not that they're a panacea or anything yeah, like that, yeah. but it's just to open up that space to think about how things could be done differently. Um, so I suppose in the context of the chapter about families, it's again, I would say it isn't, there aren't any big, huge, big ideas there, but I think we, in many respects in social professions, have lost sight of the people we're working with very often, and we very much see ourselves as working for the state, mm. and maybe sometimes even against those people we're working with, even though we mightn't see it at the time. But, mm. you know, so I think in many respects, it's about moving away from, you know, a kind of maybe social work practice or, you know, a a practice that is very much driven by risk, by control, by managing people, um, you know, by holding, Mm. you know, kind of punitive measures in the background if people don't cooperate and all of that towards looking at more collaborative ways of working, Um, you know, looking at being more empathetic, you know, Mm -hmm. with the people we're working with putting ourselves in their shoes to a much greater extent, um, you know, working more from a strengths-based approach, um, you know, improving the relationality in our ways of working. Yeah, and yeah. again, these seem like very obvious things that we're trying to do. And I admit that we are trying to do them, but sometimes we do lose sight of them because, you know, it's more about filling out this form rather than really taking on board mm. how, mm. you know, X or Y is feeling what's going on for them mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think it is about kind of shifting back from some of the ways that have come to define social work or certain kinds of practices during our time um also I think we did have a focus on you know Scotland and how Scotland yeah. you know kind of tried to follow a different path now we're I recognized our huge challenges in that context and you know it's difficult not to be swallowed up by UK you know, policy directions. But nevertheless, I think Scotland, you know, has tried to do more to redistribute, to address poverty, to keep that really at the heart of its um, social Mm -hmm. provision in many respects. And I think as well, it's important to point out we were writing this book during COVID Mm -hmm. and, um, well, certainly parts of it um, during COVID. And we were both very attuned to how things could happen fast you know, at a point of urgency when they needed to happen fast Mm -hmm. and how things that we were once told could never be done, Mm -hmm. you know, could be done during Mm -hmm. that period of time. So, you know, governments really got into gear and did certain things to deal with, to deal with a crisis. And, you know, we, I suppose that provided us with a sense that this could be done, that this is achievable. It's not, Mm -hmm unachievable but sometimes we get that idea we're convinced oh this couldn't be done mm-hmm. or we need to mm-hmm. go for smaller change and more mm-hmm. reformist change mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. too big mm-hmm. to take on a mammoth task mm-hmm. but I think you know COVID showed us that a mammoth task was taken on and addressed yeah you know now certainly it hasn't all been in a positive direction since mm-hmm. but it certainly showed us that things can be done when the will is there to do certain yeah. things like the Ukrainian crisis as well, you know, exactly. open the borders and let them in, you know. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. 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 And I suppose we need crises to show us what can be done. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, you know, we wanted to say that the state needs to be involved and the state needs to be pushed to be mm-hmm. involved because mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, things maybe remain at a certain scalar level or community level, exactly. but it needs to, you know, I suppose, move up to that level where the state takes responsibility because it has the infrastructure to do that. Mm-hmm. So we were very keen, even though we were very critical of state right throughout the book, to not let state off the hook as mm-hmm. well, but yeah. to ensure that they, you know, the state should be part of this process Yeah. yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay, Liz, I think um, that probably co- we've covered so much and uh, there's way more in the book, which we didn't have time to to, to, to cover. So obviously I encourage listeners to, to get the book and read the rest of it as well, because as I said at the outset, there's there's stuff on homeless, the criminalisation of homelessness and the politics of prisoner rehabilitation and lots of stuff that we didn't have time to talk to you, but we'll talk about. But what we did talk about was fascinating and it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. <laughs>